Freedom as a Christian The fourteenth talk in a series entitled What We Believe, Answers to Questions, was presented by Ron Julian on July 8, 2001, at Reformation Fellowship. The copyright for this recording is held by Gutenberg College, Inc., 2001. Gutenberg College is a non-profit organization, and contributions may be made at www.gutenberg.edu. This material may be copied and distributed in whole for non-commercial and educational purposes, subject to the inclusion of this introduction. All other rights reserved. A brief break occurs in the middle of the following recording. It is the result of the original audio tape switching to the second side. So the question that we're going to deal with today um, has to do with, this is a question that I get a lot from people. This question comes up a lot because we face this in various circumstances in life. And the question is, how are we as Christians supposed to exercise our Christian freedom when, when we're involved in a situation that we know that something that we do or think or are involved with uh, is disapproved of by someone else? So we have that situation where we may be giving offense in doing something that we feel perfectly free to do. The problem is that we know that the Bible says something about this. We know that, that Paul has some things to say about limiting our freedom and being all things to all people and all of that sort of thing. But it's kind of hard to know how to put the picture together. And we have, at various times in the past, discussed this because it is a challenging question and it's one that comes up a lot. Uh, so what I want to try to do this morning is what I have done is sort of gone through my mind to try to put together everything that I have seen in the Bible relating to this stuff and try to give you sort of an overall picture of what I think is a biblical way of approaching this. What does God want us to do in this regard? I want to start, I'm going to have to go big picture with what we're talking about here. I want to start with the picture that we see in the book of Galatians. In Galatians, Paul is writing to a group of churches that he has founded. He has gone and preached the gospel, predominantly Gentile, uh, the churches that he has founded. And he has proclaimed the gospel to them that they can put their faith in Christ, be forgiven their sins, and find an inheritance in the kingdom of God. He has not told them that they need to become Jewish because he doesn't believe that that's necessary. Well, after he had gone and preached to these churches, some of the Pharisees who had become Christians, they had been Pharisees, they heard the proclamation that Jesus is the Messiah, and they believed that Jesus was the Messiah. Some of that group went around to the churches kind of a clean-up tour, went around to the churches that Paul had preached to and basically said to them, okay, that's great, you know, Paul's told you that Jesus is the Messiah and that you can find salvation in him, and that's great because that's true. Unfortunately, Paul didn't tell you the whole story. 
Paul was trying to, you know how sometimes you want to kind of curry favor with people. He didn't want to offend you. He didn't want to get you mad. He wanted to get you to become a Christian. And so he didn't tell you, you know, that it's not as simple as just believing in Jesus. You, of course, are going to have to obey the law of God. And the law of God talks about circumcision and eating kosher and, and all sorts of ritual regulations that you're going to have to keep. You can't expect that God is going to welcome you into his kingdom if you disobey his law. Paul writes the letter to the Galatians in response to that situation, and he has some very strong things to say. Those Pharisaic believers, uh, we refer to them as the Judaizers, um, had insisted that Titus, who was a Gentile, be circumcised. Paul says he refused to allow it. Just because they were offended by the fact that Titus was a Gentile, he said, I don't care, we will not submit. Titus, don't you dare listen to them. When the Judaizers came to Antioch, which is one of the first Gentile churches in Acts, we saw how it says the believers were first called Christians there in Antioch. The Judaizers came to Antioch at a time when Peter, the apostle, was visiting Antioch. And Peter and all of the Jewish apostles and people from Jerusalem, that whole group, Paul and Peter and Barnabas and all of them, had been eating with the Gentiles. They were not observing Jewish dietary regulations. They were just eating with the other Gentiles, believers, together. But when the Judaizers came to Antioch, Peter evidently didn't want to have a scene, didn't want any trouble, knew that this was going to be problematic for the Judaizers, and he stopped eating with the Gentiles. And Barnabas also stopped eating with the Gentiles. And Paul publicly calls Peter on the carpet and says, Peter, what can you possibly be thinking? You're communicating to the Gentiles that somehow there's something wrong with them, that their faith in Christ is not enough. But you know perfectly well that you and I are not saved because we're Jewish. We're saved because we have put our faith in Christ. And it's the same for the Gentiles. And you backing off of eating with them is communicating something entirely wrong about the gospel itself. Okay. So in this situation that we're talking about here, as I understand it, what Paul is responding to is the perversion of the gospel. The Judaizers are, in essence, self-righteous people, meaning by that they see their situation before God, in essence, as God is going to accept me because I have kept the rules. I have done what I'm supposed to do, and the, Jew, the Gentiles will not be accepted unless they join me in keeping these rules. Those who are self-righteous tend to be offended by a strong proclamation of a gospel of grace and freedom. Paul is quite willing to be offensive in that situation. He does not back off. He does not say, well, let's stop eating with the Gentiles and maybe we can convince the Judaizers 
down the line that they should agree with us, but right now let's just not, we don't want them to be offended. He does not do that, and the reason I think he does not do that is because there is something fundamental at stake. There is a fundamental truth at stake. He is doing the Judaizers no favors by bowing to their wishes, by not offending them, because they're wrong in a fundamental way. What they, what they have decided is true is so wrong that it is a perversion of the gospel itself. They need to be offended. They need to be challenged in what they're thinking. We can notice that Jesus took the same sort of approach. I mean, Jesus offended everybody. I mean, there's hardly anybody that he dealt with that he didn't do something that caught them up short. His disciples didn't ritually wash their hands the way the Pharisees thought they ought to have. Uh, he ate with people that the Pharisees thought he shouldn't have been eating with. Um, he was quite willing to offend the religious sensibilities of his time, and he actually did it quite often. So, it seems to me as a starting point, we need to understand that the truths of the gospel are offensive, and we need to be willing to offend people. There are freedoms, there are truths about the gospel that we need to hold onto, even in the face of those who don't agree with them. Because we understand, if we do understand, what the gospel is about at its heart, and we want to stand for that and make that clear to people. Okay, that's on the one side. On the other side, uh, probably the classic passage to deal with in this regard would be in 1 Corinthians, starting in chapter 8. And I want to take us through this a little bit. What's striking here is that the issue in this passage, we're starting in chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians, is Paul says, now concerning things sacrificed to idols. The situation here is in the various pagan worship practices of the time, just as in Judaism there was a sacrifice to God, so there would be sacrifices offered to the idols. And one of the things about idols, of course, is that they don't eat. So after you've sacrificed some animal to them, the question is, what do you do with it? I mean, the idol isn't going to eat it. So one of the things you can do with it is you can take it and sell it to the guys who sell meat. Make some money for your temple, and then at the meat market, people will eat the meat that has been sacrificed to the idol, but is otherwise just meat. I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. Uh, it went through a ritual, and now it's sitting there at the meat market. Um, the question that the Christians faced was, what sort of attitude should we take toward this meat at the meat market? I think it's really helpful for us to understand as we go into this that this, this would have been a very living and vital question for the believers in Corinth because many of them were coming out of the idolatrous practices that 
Paul is addressing here. They would have been involved in those sacrifices to the idols. So it's not sort of the academic question of, I happen to be visiting a town and I'm eating some meat and I discover, oh, did you know that there's, there are odds that one of the, some of the meat that you get from the meat market might be from that temple over there? I mean, in that situation, I'd sort of say, oh, gee, that's kind of interesting and go on eating and hardly even think about it. But this is in their town, in the religious situation that they have come out of. They're very well aware of what idolatry involves at the temple. And so here they are facing this question, what do we do about this meat? And in this situation, as I understand it, we sort of have these two groups. There may have been more, but Paul is concerned with two groups in what he's talking about here. On the one hand, there is a group of that I think of as kind of the sophisticates. These are the ones who understand that Christians have freedom, that there is no such thing as an idol, that the meat is just meat, and that there is nothing morally wrong with eating the meat. But in their understanding, I call them sophisticates because there's, there's a very strong implication in 1 Corinthians that this group is quite proud of their knowledge and, and think of themselves as being very superior. They're very superior to those who think that there's something wrong with eating meat sacrificed to idols. And there's a certain sort of daring liberty that they're taking. Hey, look at me. I'm, I'm eating this meat sacrificed to idols. No big deal to me. I don't know what your, your problem is, but I, I know that it's just okay. I'm just chomping away. I don't care. It's that sort of attitude that Paul is speaking to in these three chapters of 1 Corinthians. It's that group and their attitude towards the freedom that they have to eat the meat. Now let me read chapter 8 real quick to you, what he says. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. However, not all men have this knowledge. But some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care, lest this liberty of yours somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And thus, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, that I might not cause my brother to stumble. 
The key here in this passage, I think, if we're going to understand and not not run with this in any direction we might think, but actually see what, what Paul is concerned about. The key is to see, on the one hand, he's talking about the, to the group that is puffed up, that is arrogant in its knowledge. They've, they're very superior in their understanding that they have the freedom to eat this meat. On the other hand, we have this group that he's calling weak in conscience. And the weakness that we're talking about here is a weakness of understanding. They don't understand that, in fact, there is this freedom to eat this meat because an idol is nothing and it's really not something to be concerned about. Their weakness involves, if we picture the situation, they're coming out of the situation where they have been involved in idolatrous worship. They don't want to be involved in that anymore. They recognize that idolatry is a bad thing. And in trying to pull away from that, they have gone to the extreme of saying, I don't think that we should even eat the meat at the meat market because it might have been sacrificed to an idol. Their motive in doing this is good. They're trying to keep themselves from idolatry. They're trying to, to, as best they understand, follow God and not have anything to do with idols. They're naive in their understanding. They don't really exactly yet understand what following God looks like. What does a strong faith in God look like in practice? They have reduced it to, I don't want to touch that meat. That's, that's what my strong faith in God is going to look like. And that's not exactly right. Our faith, when, when it expresses itself out of a mature understanding and trust in God, is going to have an impact, but that's not necessarily the impact it's going to have. That's not the place where the rubber ought to be meeting the road. I think it's important to to picture, though, when he describes these people as weak, it's not just a question of they happen to have a wrong piece of information. These are people who are coming out of idolatry and they're trying to keep themselves clean of it. They want to stay away from it. They don't want to have anything to do with it. Paul is describing the possibility of a situation where where this person who has been involved in idolatry is trying to keep away from it, sees someone else taking the issue of idolatry very cavalierly. Hey, it's no big deal. And they interpret the blasé sort of attitude that the person takes towards eating the meat sacrificed to idols as being a kind of a blasé attitude towards idolatry at all. Now, do you see what I'm saying here? They're, they're looking at this person eating the meat sacrificed to idols, and what they see is a Christian who thinks idolatry is no big deal. Now, I want to make two comments. Number one... They shouldn't necessarily be seeing that because eating meat sacrificed to idols in this situation, there was nothing wrong with it. A person could be dead set against following any god but God and recognize that there was a freedom to eat. Paul was like that. Paul was very clear in in understanding the God that he was following, and yet he would have felt the freedom to eat that meat. We'll see that as we go along. So on the one hand, that weaker brother in that situation 
would have been misinterpreting what was going on. But I need to be careful, Paul is saying, that I think about how am I being interpreted by this person that I'm dealing with, first of all. Even more importantly, I think, though, what is undergirding this whole thing is Paul's conviction that these so-called sophisticates, part of their sophistication is that they really are, to a certain extent, blasé about idolatry. That their, that knowledge that they have, that they have the freedom to eat that meat, it's knowledge that they welcome because they like the idea of kind of walking the edge. You know, I, I have freedom. I can, I can eat meat sacrificed to idols. And in doing that, they're not sobered by the thought that idolatry is a terrible wrong and that there is only one God and that they had better be clear in their minds about that and clear what they're communicating to others. What they're concentrating on is sort of the thrill of freedom. Hey, I can, I can do this. Watch. There's nothing wrong. It is that lack of concern with the impact of what they're doing, together with a certain casual attitude towards what is a very serious issue um, that Paul is concerned about on their behalf. Now you can see in that case, there's even more reason why that weaker brother might think that the other person has a casual attitude towards idolatry because it may very well be true. They may, in fact, have a certain casual attitude toward idolatry. Okay. In chapter 9, Paul takes what seems to be a digression. He starts to talk about his freedom as an apostle to be financially supported by the Corinthians. But there's a reason that he starts talking about that. The issue that he wants to talk about is how do we use our freedom when we have the freedom to do things, when it is morally right, morally acceptable for me to do something, like it is right and acceptable for Paul to accept financial support from the Corinthians. He argues at great length in this chapter, it is acceptable, it is right, I have every right to do it. And then he turns around and says, but I didn't take any. I have every right to take money from you guys, but I didn't do it. He doesn't exactly explain why he didn't do it, except that he says that he didn't want to be a hindrance to the gospel. I think, given the situation, that it's not hard to see what's going on. Paul was not against taking financial support. We see in his letter to the Philippians that the Philippians had supported him financially and he congratulates them for having done it. He's proud of them for their generosity to him as a servant of the gospel. So it's not that Paul was against taking support, but in this situation with the Corinthians, while he was living with them, he did not take it. It may have been his practice that while he was staying with the group, he didn't take support. It may, more specifically, relate to the Corinthians themselves because we know in his long involvement with them that many of those in Corinth were suspicious of Paul, didn't think of him as a real apostle. And if they could have used against him the charge, uh, he's just in it for the money, they would have. 
Many of them could have and would have accused Paul of being mercenary. You know, he's not a real apostle. He's just going around teaching Jesus so that we'll take care of him. So there's an easy way to solve that problem. Paul took care of himself. He worked. He worked at his trade, whatever that trade was, uh, leather working, tent making, I'm not sure. Uh, but whatever that trade was, he worked at it, and he did not accept support from the Corinthians. And it wasn't until some of his party came to help him out, some of those that were with him, that he actually started full-time spending his time proclaiming the gospel in Corinth. So he did not exercise his freedom to be supported because he was there to proclaim the gospel and he didn't want his exercise of his freedom to get in the way. It was just going to add one more problem to an already difficult situation that he did not want to be there. He wanted to be free to proclaim the gospel and for them to take it on its merits rather than trying to evaluate his motives. And as we see in his letters, he had a hard time doing that because people still were challenging his motives all the time. But at least he didn't take money from them. So they couldn't accuse him of that. And this is something that comes up in 1 Corinthians and in 2 Corinthians. How they think of Paul and, and the fact that he didn't accept support from them. It is in this situation, then, that Paul offers that as a model. Look what I did with you. I didn't take money from you guys so that I wouldn't be a hindrance to the gospel. And in fact, my general practice is, as, a, as one who proclaims the gospel, I try to become all things to all people. And here's where he talks about to the Jews, I become as a Jew, um, to those who are without law as without law, meaning the Gentiles, those who do not see themselves as being under the law of Moses. With the Jews, if he's in a group of Jews, he's going to a synagogue to preach the gospel. I mean, it's just, it's a matter of sense. He does not go into a synagogue eating a ham sandwich. It just doesn't, that's not the way to do it. I mean, he could, but it's going to create a problem that doesn't need to be there. Let's talk about the stuff that does need to be a problem. I mean, the, I, the gospel itself is offensive enough without starting out by doing something that you're not going to understand, you're going to misinterpret, and I'm going to end up communicating something that I didn't mean to communicate. In that situation, I want to limit my freedom so that what I do say is clear. I want to get the stuff that has the potential to confuse and distract out of the way so that I can state clearly what I'm here for, what the gospel is about. And there will be plenty in the gospel itself that may be offensive, and that's fine. I'm going to state it clearly, and if it's offensive, it will offend you. But let's, let's get the, the stuff that might be a problem that I can get out of the way. Let's get it out of the way. Okay, so... That's, that's what Paul is describing as his way of doing things. Obviously, this is situational. I mean, Paul is talking about when I'm with one group, I act one way. With, when I'm with another group, I act another way. He can't do both. I mean, he's either going to 
live as a Jew. I mean, if he were to say, my practice is to just never do anything that might offend anybody, he's stuck because the two groups that he wants to reach, they think the opposite about the way things ought to be done. He's going to end up offending somebody. So what he's basically saying is, when I am in a situation, when I'm with a particular sort of group, I limit my freedom. I think about what I want to do in the light of what I'm trying to accomplish in preaching the gospel. And then he talks about buffeting his body, which is basically he gives this big analogy as if he were an athlete training to win the prize of salvation for himself. And again, he uses this language because he's warning the Corinthians that the choices they're making, those who would disregard what he has to say, those who would not pay attention to the impact of their choices on other people, they're showing a real disregard for the gospel itself. Jesus died on the cross to bring salvation. And here you are, you can't limit yourself enough to stop stuffing your face with meat for the sake of not miscommunicating and really hurting another person. Distorting the gospel, leading them into into doing something that would be really bad for them to do. What kind of how can you say that you believe this stuff if you could have so little concern for the gospel and its implications, Paul is saying. So he's warning them, look, when I am out there preaching the gospel, I'm not just preaching it to them, I'm preaching it to myself, which means that I have to conduct myself in a way that is in keeping with that gospel. If I were just a messenger, I could proclaim it to you, and then I could go do what I want. But I'm not just a messenger. I am also one of those who has heard the message. And I have to respond to it. I have to believe the gospel myself. And in doing that, that means not just that I proclaim the message as I have been told to do, but I do it in a way that is faithful and believing and and fits with what I understand the gospel to be about. That's how I work out my salvation. That's how I live out my faith. He's saying. And you guys have to do the same thing. He comes to chapter 10 and he gives the example of Israel in the wilderness. It's disobedience. It's idolatry. It's evil. And how just because they were all a part of the community, that didn't mean that God was was pleased with them. And he describes how most of them fell in the wilderness. God rejected them and judged them. A warning from Paul to the Corinthians, look you guys, just because you go to church in Corinth and call yourself a Christian doesn't mean that you personally are going to be accepted by God. It's you personally following God in faith. It's your personal choice to believe and follow God that is going to result in your salvation. And how you are living your life is the arena in which you're making that choice. If you're telling me that the kingdom of God means everything to you, and yet you can watch your brother being led into sin because you can't stop eating a certain kind of meat, I'm telling you, you haven't figured out yet what the gospel is about. And you had better. Okay. Having said all of that, then, 
he comes back to the topic of idolatry because he has never really left it. It's all a part of his discussion. He tells them to flee from idolatry. And here's where we can see, Paul is saying to these sophisticated ones, look, I know that you guys know that there's nothing to eating meat sacrificed to idols, but I'm not convinced that that's really what's behind your behavior. I think you're being casual about eating that meat because you're casual about idolatry. You think it's kind of cool. I mean, you're a Christian, but you wander around town and there's this temple over here, and yeah, I used to go there and I'm eating this meat, and you know, it's no big deal. It is a huge deal. Are you a follower of the one God who has rejected all other alternatives, or are you not? You have got to decide that. And there's no kind of playing around in the middle. So, as I said, this group that he's talking about, not only are they exercising their freedom inappropriately, but they're exercising it because, in part, they, they, are, they care more about the freedom than they do about the gospel that they're supposedly following. Paul makes his final comments then. He says, eat anything in the meat market. Don't ask. It's no big deal. You go, you get some meat, you eat it. Don't even think about it. You don't have to worry about it. It's not a problem. When does it become a problem? It becomes a problem when somebody else is getting the wrong idea from what you're doing. And they're getting such a wrong idea that it is going to be destructive and hurtful to them. So, say a non-believer invites you for dinner. Great, go. They serve meat, eat it. Don't ask any questions. But if they stop and tell you, hey, that meat was sacrificed to idols. We sacrificed this meat to the idol yesterday, and now here you here are here eating it with us. Huh, small world. Where it's clear that they attach some significance to the fact that you're eating this meat, then he's saying, stop. Don't eat it. Not because there's anything wrong with it. Not not because you think there's anything wrong with eating that meat, but they do. And they understand you, if you continue to eat, they understand you to be communicating, it's no big deal to me. Not that it's no big deal to eat meat, but idolatry is no big deal to me. And that's something that you don't want to communicate. He concludes by saying that we should do all to the glory of God. And what I understand him to be saying here is that everything I do, when I exercise my freedom, when I choose not to exercise my freedom, everything that I do in this life ought to be such that it is, it is reflecting my understanding of God, that I see God as glorious and that I am living in obedience to him. Everything I do... When I, when I exercise my freedom, when I don't exercise my freedom, it is all being lived out of a picture that God is good, He is worthy of my obedience, and that's how I'm living. And if anything I'm doing is not glorifying God, but is somehow tearing down our picture of God, if I'm communicating that God doesn't care about holiness or something like that, then I'm not glorifying God in what I'm doing and I shouldn't be doing it. When Paul uses the very strong language 
at the end of chapter 10, give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things. We have to understand that all in the context of what he's talking about here. We know that Paul was quite willing to give offense in many situations. What he's talking about is the kind of, the kind of situation that we've been talking about in this, in these several chapters. That when there, I have the potential of being a stumbling block. It's not, we have this very wishy-washy sort of idea of offense in our culture. Um, that if I say something that um, is somehow disagreeable to someone, they can say, well, that offends me. When Paul talks about offending people in here, that's not what this, I don't think that's the sense of the word that he is using. That's not what we're getting at. Um, you know, in our culture, we can take a stand for sexual purity, and there are people who will say, I'm offended by that. Well, we can't avoid that. That kind of offense is, what that means is, I don't agree with it, and I don't want to live in a world where there are people like you around that make me have to think about things that I don't want to think about. Well, that's too bad. I mean, that's just going to happen. Um, we, as, we as Christians, I think, need to beware about that it seems that our culture is becoming the kind of place where it's a political move. You win by taking offense. We're, we're in that situation where if somebody takes offense, then it is the obligation of whoever has offended them to cut it out. That's, that's not a biblical value as far as I'm concerned. Um, not that we go around trying to cause trouble, but the fact is that much of what we believe is going to be offensive to some people in the world, and that's not our fault, and, and it's not something to be avoided. It's not giving offense that we're to avoid. It's being a stumbling block. It is acting in such a way that I am miscommunicating distorting the truth and leading another person astray. That's what Paul is concerned with. So, how then, if we look at the model then, how is it that we should live? What should we be concerned about? I would say the default mode. Um, that's computer talk. I hate computers. I, I'm sorry. I apologize. I, ha I have... I am going to get rid of all my computers. And, in fact, we have no more electricity in my house anymore. We're just going to live in the woods and eat roots. I love computers, you understand, but I just I hate them. Um, so, our default mode, as I said, live out the freedom of the gospel. Don't ask about the meat. Basically, we have freedom to follow our conscience to live in faith, to understand that our salvation is dependent on the grace of God in Christ, overlooking our sins and calling us into righteousness and life. I want to be concerned about what is right. I want to live a life that glorifies God. 
but I have a lot of freedom in what I choose to do and I ought to exercise that freedom. Sometimes I will find situations where there will be people who do not approve of how I exercise my freedom. What should I do? It seems to me that what we see in the model of the way Paul dealt with things is something like this. This is not a cut and dried sort of thing. This is not a rule that we can just apply because it's, it's going to be so tricky to decide. And I wish that I could be more explicit, more definitive in what I'm saying here, but we can't be. But these are the guidelines, I think. If I feel that self-righteousness and anti-gospel attitudes are behind that disapproval of what I am doing, then I am going to continue to give offense for the gospel's sake and self-righteousness. I don't mean that I'm going to go out of my way to be offensive to them, but I'm not, I'm not interested in supporting a fundamentally flawed view of life, and I'm going to continue to exercise my freedom, hopefully in a way that I can communicate well with them why I'm doing what I'm doing and what I believe. Paul describes two kinds of situations, or describes, we see him in two kinds of situations choosing to limit freedom. First of all, if I am in a situation where I have a, a fellow believer who has made this naive equation in their mind between do, exercising this freedom and abandoning God, someone who's been involved in idolatry and they just can't see anything, but if you eat that meat, then, then you're unpure and you're not following God and, and we can't do that. If... If my freedom, I can see, is being misinterpreted by them as license, that I see somebody who's struggling to get away from something and they see me giving myself over to it and thus they stop the struggle. And what for me is a freedom exercised in good conscience for them is going back to something that they're trying to get away from. Then... I ought to try to be concerned about where they're coming from and not miscommunicate to them. I want to be supportive of them following righteousness. If they're trying to do what's right, if they're trying to follow God, then I want to be supportive of them doing that. So that's one situation that Paul describes. The other is just in general, if I am trying to communicate to someone, if I'm trying to talk to them about the gospel or talk to them about important things and something that I'm doing has the potential of miscommunicating and getting in the way. It's, it's a distraction. I'm trying to talk to them about the gospel and all they can see is the fact that I'm drinking a beer while I'm doing it or something like that. Then, by all means, I limit my freedom so that the distraction is not there. Because the gospel that I'm talking about with them is more important than whatever it is that I'm exercising my freedom in doing. I do not want to dis miscommunicate what the essence of the gospel and real life is about. I do not want to entice somebody to do something that they think is against their conscience, that is wrong. And I don't want to be a distraction to someone who is trying to understand the gospel. 
Everything here has to do, ultimately, it comes back to love. What do I think is going to be most constructive? And in general, what is most constructive is to model my freedom, to communicate the gospel clearly, and to limit my freedom if I can see that in doing so I can render a service to the person that I'm dealing with. If they're just offended by what I do, frankly, I don't care. The question is whether I can serve them by limiting my freedom, whether I can actually help them to see things more clearly. It creates an opportunity. Either I am not enticing them to do something against their conscience or I am creating an opportunity where I can be heard better and and we can maybe come to an understanding of things. Those are the kinds of situations where I would I would react to some, what I know is disapproval in someone else. Okay, so that's that's how I would put it together. I know that doesn't answer all the questions or tell you what to do in every situation, but that's the best I can do at this point in trying to put together how this works. So let me take whatever questions or comments you might have then. Roger, I got it right here. I just wondered, um, this is real helpful to me, and I was thinking, just as you were saying the last thing about um, what we do, I was thinking if that also doesn't apply to what we, kind of what we don't do and why. It's kind of like, as an example, a neighborhood boy was over yesterday and he was saying how, asking if I'd ever meditated and showing Mm -hmm. me how to sit cross-legged and all this. And just that a friend of his, he'd known and kind of had told him about this, that he really likes to do that. And and he was just kind of bringing it up out of the blue, you know. Have you ever done this? And, no. And he was telling me about it, and I, I thought, you know, some people would think, well, maybe I should launch into a thing to say, well, I never would do this because mm-hmm. I'm a Christian, all that. Um, but it seemed like in that situation, that wasn't the thing to do. Mm-hmm. But then there have been other neighborhood kids who've come around and said, seen us doing something and said, well, I didn't think a Christian would do that or watch that or something. Mm -hmm. And then it seems like that would be more the time to Mm -hmm. explain stuff more. So it seems like what we, because there seems to be times when we need to, I guess when someone is watching us, and is that kind of that same sort of thing where you you don't do things, but you don't want to be self-righteous with someone Mm -hmm. that might listen to you. Otherwise, yeah, I think the principle can work its way out in a lot of ways. It could also work its way out in my doing something that I wouldn't have chosen to do. I mean, Jack tells the story about the his his personal. uh, I won't go into the whole thing, but it's a situation where he could tell that somebody was basically testing him to see whether whether he would take a sip of alcohol not not to see whether he would do something evil but to see whether he would he was what kind of a christian he was you know was he was he a judgmental hung up sort of christian or could he you know could he actually live out the freedom that he supposedly believed in and jack can tell that story it was a kind of a turning point in his life but there was a situation where 
he, it wasn't something that he wanted to do, but he felt like in the situation to do it was the right thing. That it it would not to not do it would miscommunicate. And what I want to avoid doing is communicating to others something about the faith or about myself that is fundamentally untrue, if I can avoid it. So, um, yeah, in that kind of situation, there are lots of different ways you can go. I mean, uh, if someone were to talk to me about meditation, um, you know, I... I would consider saying something like, well, you know, it depends. If if we're talking about sort of, you know, quieting your mind and, and uh, you know, the, the physiological thing of lowering your heartbeat and getting calm and not thinking about things for a while and that kind of stuff, yeah, might be might be a worthwhile thing to do. What bothers me, I might say, is that so often it's tied to a particular religious worldview where where there's a certain view of reality that's behind it and that's I probably wouldn't do it because of that you know if if I had enough of a relationship with the person where I wasn't just you know getting in their face about it or something um, again we start with the basic principle I am trying to be concerned for the other person love love your neighbor as yourself what is it about what I'm doing? If if I if I feel like I'm harming them in doing something or not doing something, then I should act differently. And, and in essence, Paul is is just trying to work out the implications of that in those situations where there's an issue that people don't agree about how they ought to do it. I wondered if um, that first chapter that you read about. Um Paul talking about um, knowledge being used in a right. certain way right. uh, is more deceptive than than the heart, so to speak. Um, if part of what was going on there too was uh, addressing the idea that um, if you're, they were looking at people who were developing in their understanding and out of fear their knowledge being wrong, but out of fear, uh, acting a certain way. Um, could it be that in presenting yourself, your attitude towards against something, um, against uh, that knowledge, um, would be kind of the same thing on or a different... Um, the same kind of coin in a way it's, right. it's like saying uh, you know oppositional bravado right. Um, right. would be what you need to learn as opposed to um, opening yourself right right. I think in the particular that passage in chapter 8 I think his, his eyes are on the target of the ones who have the knowledge that it's okay to eat but you're right, there's a potential for both groups to get superior in their attitude toward each other. That the ones who think you shouldn't do this could also take on uh, a judgmental sort of attitude. And in fact, in the, 
in Romans uh, 14, a similar issue is discussed. And Paul warns there, sort of each side. He, he warns those who think you shouldn't against judging, condemning the ones who are eating. I mean, they would, they would look at the ones who are eating the meat and saying they shouldn't be doing that. And the tendency would be to condemn them as wrongdoers. The ones who feel the freedom to eat look at the ones who say you shouldn't be eating at it, eating, and they look at them with contempt. He says, uh, so he's warning the one group, don't look at those who are weaker with contempt, and you guys don't look at them in condemnation. Both of you need to step back and recognize what what's fundamentally important in this stuff. I mean, the the salvation that Christ is bringing, our, that we're being forgiven for our sins, and we are finding life in spite of whether we have done it right or not, and that sort of thing. So, yeah, if I if I understood your comment, I think that's right. That you could say that there's a certain kind of knowledge on both sides. The ones who know that have the freedom, it happens their knowledge is right, and that's what Paul's kind of getting at in the in the first part. There, they're right, and the other guys are wrong. But it doesn't matter that these guys are right because they're not exercising. Technically, they're right, but in actuality, they're using their knowledge like a weapon instead of being concerned about the other guys. Which would be the wrong thing to teach somebody uh, if you're talking about the people who may be evolving. Right. Um, you right. don't want to teach them opposition for bravado's sake. Yes. yes. So it's, a, it's the wrong kind of attitude to take towards opposition. Yes. 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 That's, that's true. Roger? I have a question. Um, you said that this question comes up often. Um, can you remember some of the contemporary context in which this question arises? Well, of course, as long as I've been a Christian, there have been debates about this issue in regard to alcohol. And, of course, the problem is that as you always run into in these sorts of situations, even in talking about it, if I were to talk weaker brother and so forth, which side do I pick as the weaker brother? Because, um, I mean, I, I think that even among us here, there at least at times in the past, there has been differences of opinion as to whether a Christian could be morally justified in drinking alcohol. My comments earlier probably showed that I, I would think that we are, that alcohol is a morally neutral thing. Drunkenness is not a morally neutral thing. I think we can all agree on that. I, I would understand alcohol to be morally neutral at this point. So certainly where I'm sitting, I have to make that assessment as I think about um, how my how the exercise of my freedom communicates itself to other people. And the two, like I say, as I see what Paul's talking about, the two areas that I would think about is, first of all, am I being a stumbling block in the sense of, am I aware of someone who would interpret my drinking alcohol as an indifference to righteousness and and find themselves in their own maybe struggle with alcohol 
emulating me because they want to go that way and to them but to them the decision to go that way is is a decision against right but 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 I'm sort of providing this model of of indifference to righteousness if I thought that was happening then I need to be paying attention to that and and ward that off and then the other thing is just in general um, if I'm going to a group and I want to catch their ear I want I have something that I think that I can be helpful in talking to them or to an individual I ought to be thinking about not being a distraction in the by say for instance you know we'll go out we'll go out to lunch together um, probably if I if I'm paying attention to the situation I might be aware that maybe getting a beer or something like that would not be a good idea I'm, I'm just going to be creating problems that I don't need to create in doing that I mean it's, I'm speaking hypothetically if you were to that's not much of an issue for me personally because I don't much like alcohol. <laughs> so, um, you could put. Well, in, in regards to Go Roger's ahead. question, is this yes. seems to parallel to a great deal in our discussion about communion, in that why don't we celebrate communion every single Sunday? The church that we used to go to, they did. Right. And there's problems with either side. You know, right. either it becomes mechanical, or do you forget about the significance and never do it? And before we did our communion, um, we talked about it. We educated ourselves, you know, as a body as to what was right and what was wrong and what it meant and what it didn't mean. And I see that the issue of the idolatry and the meat is much the same way in that uh, that same person that you don't want to offend as they're a brand new Christian might, after over a period of time and they become educated and understand and realize the freedom along with you, you go and do whatever that was that it was offensive Right. Um, to them, right? Um, so I, I see a lot of parallels between how you conduct yourself. I mean, the whole issue of once saved, always saved, versus you know, uh, can you lose your salvation? Any number of issues. As a church, we walk down this road, and either side can fall if it's not done with your eyes open and knowing what you're getting into when you're right. doing it. Right. No, I, I, I agree with that. I wanted to share an example that in some ways fits in here. When I was in high school, I can't remember exactly how old, but one of my youth group leaders, I think he was turning 21, and the rumor was that they were going to go out and have a beer. For me and many of my friends at that time in our culture, our little subculture at our Christian church, even though it was quite liberal in many ways, it was like, oh my gosh, he's throwing everything away. He doesn't care about God anymore. He's going to be one of those bad people who drinks. Right. I'm not saying that that's, that was an immature um, understanding. It was also a new, and I was very young in, in my faith. But I remember what bothered me the most about it was that when they found out that it was kind of bothersome to us and that we were worried. I think we were like praying for him, mm-hmm. if I can remember correctly, uh-huh. like in a special, the basement of the youth group, mm-hmm. that it might not happen. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what was the hardest part about it was that when, when he found out, there was kind of this humorous response mm-hmm. to what was very big right. for us. Right. Um, and it seems like 
that fits in to what Paul's talking about. I didn't feel very cared about or nurtured in my faith. Right. No, I think so. I I mean, I don't, I don't know, and we don't know the circumstances or what he was thinking. But yeah, that's exactly the sort of situation where I could see someone in that spot. Of course, I mean, forgive me for saying this, but twenty-one—that's not all that old either. So he had some growing up to do as well. But um, I'm just, I'm just speaking as a person who didn't actually become conscious till somewhere around twenty-five. So. Um, the yeah, it's the fact that he would be going to do that would seem fine to me. It's at that spot when he realizes that 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 people are concerned here. Someone who had the maturity to really value the gospel and the lessons of life and and the impact of my life on other people in a, a more mature person, I think, would have in that spot said, okay. At least let's back up here a little bit. Let's sit down and talk about what's involved and make sure that that I respect, you know, that that concern that I'm not the concern that I'm abandoning the faith or something like that. Let's let's talk about the faith and how I see it and so on. And maybe even choose not to exercise that freedom at least for a while until until everybody's clear as to how I'm looking at it and and what's going on. The tricky line to follow, the the difficult thing is that it's not just because somebody else is bothered by it that I would choose not to do it. And I can't, I can't, and there comes a point at which I'm going to have to just live my life. Paul seems to be speaking to a very specific situation where I know this person is weak here. They really do not understand, and they're vulnerable in that weakness. And what I'm not to do is to be unconcerned with their vulnerability, or just in general to be unconcerned about doing things that make it harder for other people to learn something from me. I don't want to do that. But... Many things that I do will be hard for people to deal with because I'm a Christian, and there are times when it's just appropriate to do that. I mean, in this group, knowing you as I do, I don't have a problem with, say, having a beer or something like that somewhere along the line because I don't think I'm miscommunicating to you. Some of you might come to me and say, you know, I don't agree with you about that. I think this is a problem, and that's why, and here's why. And then we would talk about it, and that's fine. Those kinds of disagreements, I think, are appropriate and healthy, and we should talk about those things. What I would be concerned about is not that somebody disagreed with me about it, but if there was somehow I was, I felt that in that w- what was being gained through the exercise of my freedom was less than what was being lost. If I thought that there was more harm than good coming from it, because there can be good that comes from the exercise of freedom, even if it's just the the conversations that result in our mutual resolve, you know, well, we may not agree on this issue, but we do agree that we want to follow righteousness, and all of that stuff can be good that comes out of it. It's just because we disagree and it's uncomfortable sometimes, that's not necessarily bad. But sometimes it can be bad, and to the extent that I have the eyes to see that 
that the fallout from this is the situation is worse if I do it than if I don't, then I ought to be concerned about that. That's what makes it tricky, is it's not just a question of of disagreement, but concern for the other person's welfare. And I might add, when it comes to the alcohol question, what gets complicated by that is not just the moral question, but also the nature of alcohol itself, if we're dealing with people who have are coming from alcoholism or drinking problems or something like that, then there's another layer of concern. It may not be, we may be in total agreement morally about it, but I, it's going to be very destructive for me to be putting a stumbling block in their way just in terms of how they're trying to, to live. And that, that's another question altogether that's different than the one Paul's raising. Okay?